You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Um, well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Foothills Calvary again. It's um, good to see you all. And for those of you that don't know me, my name is Caleb. I'm, I'm actually the worship pastor. So what's going on this morning is not, is not normal. Um, Scott is, is with Pam in, at the hospital. Um, she has started chemotherapy again. Um, so much, much prayers are appreciated. So they're watching online and, um, and, uh, yeah, just want to let them know we're praying for them. So, um, this morning we're going to continue in Revelation and, uh, before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for um, you and your presence, uh, for the gift of, of today, the gift of your grace and mercy, of your holy word written to us, of the gift of your son, I just ask that you would speak through me this morning, that you would speak through your, your scriptures, that you would remind us that you're in control, that you would remind us of your presence in our life and your love for us. And this morning, we give you all the glory and the honor. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> all right, so Revelation chapter 12. For those of you that haven't been here, maybe this is your first time, which I think for a few of you it is, um, we've been going through the book of Revelation together as a church. And um, if you haven't read the book of Revelation, it's a very unique um, type of book. So um, before, we, um, before we delve in, there's just a few things that I want to remind us of as we read it that's going to help us um, to better understand what we're reading here, um, knowing that we're not going to understand all the details. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of symbolism in this book, and there's a lot of um, interesting images and, um, and stories. And so I'm understanding that we're not going to understand every little detail of it. Um, there are some things that are going to help us so we can better discern what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us um, through, this, um, through this book. So number one, the book of Revelation actually falls into three types of literature. Um, it it kind of goes, goes back and forth and, and does several at once, but um, number one, Revelation is a letter, um, which means it's written to specific people for a specific occasion and a purpose, um, and also that it expects a response. Now, initially, it was written to the first century church. There were seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, likely, other first century churches would have read the book as well, um, but it was written to seven specifically to address issues that they were dealing with. But what's cool about the way that God works and the way the Holy Spirit works is he, um, is he uses a book, a letter that was written to other people um, to also be written to us. It's also written to us as the church. It's also written to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot we can learn about it, but it's important to understand that there's a response that's expected. Uh, Revelation 1.3 says, blessed are those that keep and obey the words of this prophecy. And Revelation 22, 18 through 19, likewise warns that those do, that do not respond correctly, um, well, you just, let's just say you don't wanna be part of that group. So there is a response, and the response is either to repent if we're like the five churches that we read about in chapters two and three that aren't doing well, or to remain faithful through, through um, persecution and suffering, like two of the churches. And so that's what the book of Revelation does, is it warns us, but it also encourages us. 
which there's no type of literature today that's able to do that. It's able to warn and encourage at the same time. Um, it, it's very, it's incredible how this is put together, how the Holy Spirit orchestrated this. The rest of the book of Revelation uses visions and signs inspired by the Holy Spirit to encourage and to convict, to encourage and to warn by reminding us who's in control, but also who is behind evil. Now, the book of Revelation is also biblical prophecy. Now, this is, and I'm not, biblical prophecy is important because I'm not talking about post-enlightenment secular or pagan prophecy, which is primary function is to predict the future. And the entire validity of pagan prophecy is that, um, is whether or not it's right, whether or not it comes true. Like palm readers, tarot cards, crystal ball, like that kind of stuff. That's, that's post-enlightenment secular prophecy. But biblical prophecy, although it, it does predict the future, very often it doesn't always just do that. First of all, biblical prophecy always comes to fruition. We know that because we, we, we read the Bible. <laughs> we see it come to fruition. But biblical prophecy doesn't always just talk about the future. It, it talks about what the present readers are dealing with in the form of, of conviction, of exhortation, of warning, things like that. And so it, its function is more than just to, to, um, to predict the future. So as we read through the book of Revelation, we can't assume that every single section of it is predicting the future. It's also something called apocalyptic literature, which this is new to us. This is a, uh, this is a type of literature that we don't have today. Um, and in apocalyptic literature, what it does is it talks about real events in a symbolic way. And it's meant to change the reader's perspective on life. It's meant to change our perspective on the world, our perspective on sin, our perspective on ourselves. It's meant to unveil. That's why we get the name Revelation. The book of Revelation is because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ or it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ and his purposes. It's the unveiling of, of Jesus and what he's gonna do, how he's gonna return, how he's gonna judge and how he's gonna redeem. And so it's important to remember those things as we move through. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 12, it starts a new cycle of visions. You'll notice that as we've done chapters four through 11, it was telling the story about, through symbolic form, about, about how the end times are gonna happen. It, it, it talks about how, how Jesus is gonna judge, how persecution is gonna happen, how people are gonna be punished, and how some people are gonna be redeemed, those that follow Jesus Christ. And chapter 11 ends with this. It ends with, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then there's a scene of worship. And so chapter 11 ends with the victory of Jesus Christ. And then we get to chapter 12 and it steps back and it starts talking about things in the past. So chapter 12 is not talking about things that are gonna happen in the future. It's actually, in my opinion, it's talking about things that have already happened. And it's telling another story. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's telling this, a similar story to what we just read in four through 11. It's telling that story from a different perspective, from the heavenly perspective. And that's important to remember. We, we see in this story, chapter 12, we see the triumph of God over evil unfolding on a cosmic scale. It's pulling back the curtain on the hostility between the world and God's people. So I don't think it's cha chapter 12 is talking about events that happened in the great tribulation. It's, it's telling a story to reveal or to unveil something that's important for us to understand. And chapter 12 tells the story of God's people. It takes up the theme of the persecution of God's people and it does so under the symbolism of the dragon, of the woman, of her child and of her offspring. It tells the same story about the mission, God's mission and the consummation of his kingdom from a divine perspective. And this is all basically 12 through 14 is this, is this entire story because 14 ends with God's covenant people standing on Mount Zion triumphant over the beast. 
and the final hour of judgment in those that worship the beast. It draws a contrast between those that have the seal of God on their foreheads and those that have the mark of the beast. So as we go into chapter 12, understand that's what we're reading. We're, we're, we're reading a new cycle of visions and it's talking, about, um, it's talking about some different things. Now in the first century, um, stories about the battle between good and evil were used to help win the reader's allegiance to the side of good and alienate them from evil. There was, there was one that was particularly familiar um, or would have, would have been in the first century, and it might be familiar to, to many of you. It was the story of Apollo. And so the way that this story goes, and, and many like it, were the, so the, this woman named Leto, was, um, she became pregnant by the god Zeus, um, and, and she was pursued by the dragon Python to kill her baby because Python knew that her baby was going to rule, and he wanted to rule. Now the earth helped Leto and the north wind carried her away to an island in the Aegean Sea where she gave birth to Apollo and Artemis, both names that are probably familiar to you. The tale ends, of course, with Apollo seeking out and killing the dragon. Now this stories and others like it were used by Roman emperors for a couple things. Number one, like I said already, to, um, to win readers to the side of good or the side, in their case, of the Roman Empire and alienate them from the side of evil. And the Roman emperors would identify with Apollo basically saying that they're like him and that their reign is now going to usher in peace. And they called it the Pax Romana. It was the unending Roman peace. And so they would establish their authority. And, and as we're going to see here in a minute, John uses a very similar story. In fact, it seems like he plagiarized just a little bit. And he took this story, but he uses it with a few major differences. He uses it for a totally different purpose. Rather than, to, um, rather than to celebrate popular culture like the Roman Empire did, he uses it totally opposite. So let's dive into this. Chapter 12, verses one through six. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and they should feed her there 1,260 days. So here's the story, very similar to the, that first century story about Apollos. There's this woman that John sees, or uh, that, yeah, that John sees, and, um, and it, there's gonna be clues, as you've noticed throughout Revelation, there's Old Testament imagery over and over and over again. And so if we understand, the better we understand the Old Testament, uh, the more of these images are gonna pop out to us, and we're gonna understand immediately what it's saying. So if you've read Genesis 37 recently, which many of you are going through this right now with us. We're reading the Bible in a year. You just read this story. And so when you read the sun, you look at chapter 12 and you see the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, you know who that's referring to. It's referring to Jacob, his wife, and his 12 sons. In 37.9 in Genesis, Joseph says, it says, then he dreamed still another dream and told his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars have bowed down to me. So the way the woman is described with the moon beneath her feet, with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars tells us that she represents Israel. She represents the God's covenant people. And the way that she standing with the moon beneath her feet signifies her permanence in heaven despite 
what we see, which is seeming fragility here on earth and the uncertainty of the outcome. From the earthly perspective, we don't know what's gonna happen. It looks like things are hard. But God remind, reminds us that there's permanence in heaven for those that follow him. In verse two, she's in labor and about to give birth. Now, this word that's used for, um, for labor or birth is, is the, um, the same word that's used in James chapter one, verse 15, which talks about sin giving birth to death. So it's not physical birth. It's using a word that means the, the, the conception or the consummation of something. And in this case, it's the kingdom of God from the community of God's covenant people. The kingdom of God obviously being represented in Jesus. If you haven't picked up on this already, the child that she gives birth to, it's Jesus. Spoiler alert. <laughs> in verse three, another sign appears, a dragon with seven heads and 10 hordes and seven diadems. These mean that his, his desire is to rule. That's what these represent. His desire is to rule, to destroy, and to kill and to devour. So I think you're probably getting a clue as to what this dragon represents. There's a reason he wants to kill the child is because he knows the child is gonna rule. The point of a story like this is for the readers to identify with the child and be repulsed by the dragon. And so it tells us this, it reminds us that this dragon, Satan, since the beginning of time has been doing the best he can to threaten the purposes of God. In verse two, his tail, in verse four, his tail pulling down the stars. Now this could represent a few things. Number one, um, because it talks about a third of the stars, I mean, when, when Satan, for those of you that don't know, was an angel in heaven named Lucifer. And when he revolted because of his pride, he was kicked out of heaven and he took a third of the angels with him. So another clue that this is Satan. However, in accordance with Daniel 8.10, pulling down the stars and trampling them could also represent something else. In Daniel 8.10, uh, there's a, a, a similar apocalyptic style literature written um, that likens the devil to a goat. And it says, and it grew up, the goat grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And then in Daniel 8, verse 24, it, it, it explains that the stars, bless you, <laughs> the star. <laughs> The stars represent the saints, the people of God. So this reference could also be to the devil trampling the saints. So what's the point then? The point is this, that this dragon, his desire is to rule, his desire is to persecute God's people, and his desire is to kill the child that would rule. He's standing before the woman waiting to devour the child, expecting to have victory. However, in verse five, this woman bore a child that was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And this is a reference to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verses 9, it explains that the, the Messiah or the anointed one would, rule, would break them with a rod of iron, is what it says. The anointed one will rule and shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. Now, what does this rod of iron represent? For those, it means this, it represents for those that oppose God, it represents their demise. It means that this anointed one is judge. But for the people of God, a rod of iron represents the hope of being led by our shepherd to rivers of living water. Like we talked about in chapter seven, verses 17. He's a shepherd that will guide us to clear waters. Now this child was caught up to God in his throne. Now in the pagan story of Apollo and others like it, the baby's whisk, whisked away and protected until he can finally, when he becomes a man, he can defeat the dragon and avenge his mother. Now, in this case, obviously, John doesn't talk about the, the life, the, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it goes straight from his birth to his enthronement at the right hand of God, specifically for the purposes of this story. 
but also to remind us that what defeated evil, what defeats death, what defeats Satan, is Christ's death and resurrection. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. That's not a law. It's, it's not a victory for evil. It's a loss for evil. It's a victory for Christ, and it's a victory for us. And then in verse six, the woman flees to the wilderness and is protected by God. And we'll pick back up with that story. There's a, there, it, the, the story changes a little bit in, in verses seven, and then it goes right back to the woman. Now, contrary to the story of Apollo, Jesus' enthronement doesn't usher in peace like the Roman emperors used it. Instead, an epic battle ensues. And now a, a lot of people, as they, they read the book of Revelation, again, um, it's trying to read the book of Revelation as if it's 100% all literal and that it's a timeline. This, then this, then this, then this. And I've heard a lot of people, I've heard this many times and I've even said it, is, is the idea that, that if you're gonna take the word of God seriously, you should be taking it literally. Or, or if you take the word of God seriously, therefore you're taking it literally. And the more literally you take it, the more seriously you're taking it. And as soon as you start to see things as symbols or representative, then you're not taking God's word as seriously as you could. However, if you're reading a book like Revelation or like the Psalms that are not literal narratives, that are different types of literature, liter literature that's meant to be taken figuratively and meant to be read as such, reading God's word seriously means that we have to understand how we're supposed to read a book like this. Taking God's word seriously means understanding what type of literature it is and then allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us through understanding what these symbols represent. Now, many people read, well, that will read chapter 12, verse one through six, and they'll say, they'll, they'll say, well, obviously this is about Jesus, can't debate that, it's very clear. But then in, chapter, in verse seven, they see, they see war and they're like, okay, now we're back, now we're back to the tribulation. Now we're back to the, the, the timeline of events that's gonna happen. Or, they, or, or many people assume that this war that's breaking out in heaven is about um, when Lucifer initially fell, um, when he became prideful and when he was kicked out of heaven and took a third of the angels with him. But I, I think this battle is actually a result of Jesus' resurrection and enthronement about his defeat of death and what he did on the cross. And there's a few clues that we'll see as we read through this that's gonna show us that. So let's read um, verse seven through 12 together. It says, and a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. 
And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. So these verses, obviously the, bat, the battle is explained in, in verses seven through nine. And then in 10 through 12 is, is comprised of, of kind of an interpretive hymn that, that explains to us what's happening here. It's almost like in, 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 those, in old plays that had a choir that would, would kind of sing along with what was going on. Um, they would have little interludes. It's kind, of, it's kind of like that. There's a heavenly choir that's singing this interpretive hymn that tells us what is going on here. And they say that the blood of Christ is what defeated Satan and what caused him to be cast down to the earth. It defeated Satan once and for all and enables the saints to overcome and triumph as well. These verses show how this battle depicted is actually connected and subsequent to the incarnation, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His blood and the redeeming work of the cross is what delivered the final blow. So let's look at this. Let's try, to, let's try to make sense of all this. In verse 10, a proclamation comes from heaven saying that all power has been given to Christ and the accuser Satan has been cast down. Now this is interesting. So in the Old Testament, after, after um, Lucifer was cast down and be, became referred to as, as Satan or the devil, when he was cast down, he, was prowl, he prowls the earth like a roaring lion. He still does today and he has since then. But in the Old Testament, we see something interesting where, where Satan has access to heaven. At least he has the ability to accuse us before God. We see that in Job chapter one and chapter two. We see that in Zechariah three, one through five, where Zechariah sees a vision of, of, Satan, um, of, of Satan condemning or accusing a man in ragged robes before God. And then obviously we all know the story of, of Job, um, very, very likely, but, but Job was a very righteous man and Satan um, went to God and said, and said, well, Job is only righteous because he has everything he needs and he's not in want. And so it goes on this whole, we go on this whole rabbit trail about that story, but we'll save that for a different time as well. But the idea is Satan was able to accuse us before God. And, and Pastor Chuck Smith sums this up perfectly. He says that, not only does Satan accuse us before God, but he accuses us to ourselves. He reminds us that we're not good enough, that we're sinful, and that we have faults. He tries to make us forget God's mercy and his love for us by convincing us that we have no right to stand before God. But something evidently happened when Jesus, through with Jesus' death and resurrection, and that, that, and that was that Satan was cast out that since Jesus did what he did on the cross, Satan doesn't, either doesn't have access to heaven or he doesn't have the ability to accuse us before God any longer. Satan can no longer stand before God and say, well, this person's unrighteous, you should punish them. Well, this person's not good enough, you should punish them or you should take something away from them. He can't do any more what he did to Job because our righteousness is not based on our own works. Our righteousness is solely based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so Satan's accusations have no validity. They have no merit. So when Satan tells us, when he tells us that lie and he whispers in your ear saying, you're not good enough to stand before God. Know that he is not good enough to stand before God 
And that because of what Jesus did, we can stand before him clean. We can stand before God victorious with white robes cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that this, this battle is depicted is to show us that evil is cosmic in dimension. It's like what I talked about before as we go into chapter 12. It's kind of telling this story of the persecution of God's people and the, the coming of God's kingdom, but it's telling it from a divine perspective looking down, reminding us that evil that happens on this world is something of cosmic dimension and that Satan is behind it all. But not only that, not only is Satan behind it all, but as we read the story and we read about the, the, the battle in heaven and that Satan was cast down and, and him and his angels were defeated and he was cast down to the earth, we know that this evil that we know Satan's behind, any evil that we encounter, though it's from Satan, is really a defeated power. And it's just a matter of time before the final blow is dealt. In Revelation 20, verses 10, it says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. In verse 11, it says, Satan was overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, overcome harkens back to the letters to the churches and links Christ's victory to us. In other words, he's the only person that we can rely on. He's the only thing that we can rely on, the only thing we can trust in, the only, the on, the only work that we can lean on for our salvation is Christ's work his death and resurrection, the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony. Well, what's our testimony? Our testimony is remaining faithful to God in the midst of suffering. That's the testimony that's referred to over and over again, the blood of the lamb and therefore the word of our testimony that we remain faithful to Jesus Christ and his promises and lean on him when everything else, when the world says otherwise. Because Satan's defeat is imminent. We know it's coming, it's coming to an end. And therefore, Satan's accusations to God have no validity. Our victory is going to be in him. As, as, like I said before, as you'll see in, in chapter 14, the redeemed of God stand victorious with the lamb. And we share in his victory. Revelation 5.10 says, He has made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign on the earth. So what is this section telling us then? The, the devil has been, sent, has, has been cast down to the earth is what it says. And now according to verse 12, it says, it says, rejoice, O heavens, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short because of what Jesus Christ did, but he also knows that his, it's almost like his territory has been severely limited because he no longer has access to accuse us to God in the vast expanse of heaven. His territory is limited to the fenced-in area of earth, and he knows that the final blow is coming. So, of course, what's he going to do? He's going to unleash the worst that he has on us. He's going to do all he can to tear us down. He's going to lie. He's going to convince us. Of, he's he's going he's to whisper in your ear. He's going to make, make the, the wrong things look good. He's going to make bad things like death look like good things to our culture. That's all I'm gonna say. He's gonna make sin look good. He's gonna convince the whole culture that, that a certain sin or a certain lifestyle or, or taking a certain life is, is okay. That's how the devil works. He brings the worst that he absolutely has because he knows that his time is short. 
and therefore he rages all the more. This, the worst things that we see is, is it's, it's a sign of the, of, of the devil or the dragon's final and futile attempt to exercise the power that he does have before the final defeat that he knows is coming. So let's move on to verses 13 through 17. Now we pick back up with the story of the woman. Verse 13 says this, it says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, or Israel, who gave birth to the male child, or Christ. But the woman was given two, great, two wings of a great eagle, Old Testament reference, that she might fly into the wilderness, Old Testament reference, to her place where she will be nourished, Old Testament reference, <laughs> for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this dragon is cast to the earth Persecutes the woman, but she escapes, and God takes care of her. Obviously, we know we know this if we've read any of the Old Testament. We know the story of Israel and how God provided and took care of them time and time again through flood, through the wilderness, through persecution. So we start to see how Chapter Twelve is is telling the whole story of of Israel from whom the Messiah came from the beginning all the way until now and the subsequent persecution of God's people, and that includes the church, as we'll see in verse 17. Pain and childbearing, the great eagle, and the earth helping her, the wilderness, nourishment, these are all references to the story of Israel. But then John ties the church in, in verse 17. There's the offspring of the woman. Yes, it makes a distinction between the woman and her offspring. But who are her offspring? It says those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That means if you have the testimony of Jesus Christ, then not only do you know that you're part of God's people, but you also know that you're gonna be persecuted. You also know that Satan's gonna come after you. Now since Satan can no longer kill the male child, and this is, this is important, since Satan can no longer kill the male child and he can no longer accuse us before God in heaven, all he can do is pursue the woman and persecute her offspring. All he can do is attack Israel, attack God's people, and attack her offspring, which includes the church. Now the serpent attacks the woman with flood, but the earth helped the woman and swallowed up the flood. And then the dragon makes war with the rest of the woman's offspring those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, so what, is the, what is the purpose of this chapter? Why, why tell this story again from a different perspective? Why does, why does Revelation take these, these kind of cyclical, um, it, it does these cyclical visions where it'll tell the same story over and over again, but it'll tell it from different perspectives. What's the purpose of that? And it's this, it's so that we see our story in the context of God and his people and his promises regarding his kingdom coming. 
I'll say that again. So this story is so that we see our story in the context of God and his people, his promises, and his kingdom coming. The purpose is to remind us that the devil is behind the evil that happens on the earth. It gives us the lens which, with which we should view persecution and hardship and struggle. Many of you have probably heard this question asked from maybe from Christians, but most likely from, um, from atheists or agnostics. And the question is this, why does God let, good, like bad, let bad things happen? Or why does God allow evil to endure? And to be honest, I, I don't know that anybody has a really good answer for that. I don't have a good answer for it. I don't know what the reason is that Satan is still prowling around like he does, but I, know what the, I, I, don't, I don't know why... I don't know what the reason is that evil still exists, but I know what the reason can't be, and it can't be that God doesn't love us because then he wouldn't have sent his son, and it can't be that he doesn't care for us because otherwise he wouldn't have protected his people time and time again. So I don't know what the reason is that, that things are happening. We, talk, we talked about that in, 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 when we were in Second Peter. At the end of Second Peter, it talks about, you know, we, we think God is late. Or why, why is he so slow in bringing about his promises? Well, it's not, it's not slow from his perspective. He looks at it a different way, and we have to trust him in that. But what I do know is that even though evil is here now, it's a defeated power. And Satan knows that his time is short, which is why he persecutes God's people all the more. It's why he unleashes the worst that he has and he brings his quote unquote best to the fight because he knows that in Revelation 20.10, the final blow is gonna be dealt and he's gonna be sent into the lake of fire for eternity. Here's the most important things to understand out of this. Number one, Satan no longer has the ability to accuse us before God. His territory has now been relegated simply to the earth because his accusations have no merit. His accusations about us have no merit because of what Christ did. And so here on earth, he unleashes all that he has. Now this section and, and also the, the heavenly voices singing in, in verses 10 through 12 seek to reverse the common perspective of the faithful and their suffering on earth. Those who remain faithful even to death and stay committed to Christ conquer Satan. That's why it says in verse 11, it says, and they did not love their lives to the death. That means that we're willing to remain faithful even to death, even though the worst is set before us so that we can stay committed to Christ. But this is also our incentive to persevere so imagine being in the first century churches where, where you, you were, if, if, if a church was being persecuted, like the church in Philadelphia or the church in Smyrna, these churches were being persecuted so it looks like they were doing something wrong. But when we read chapter 12 and really when we read the whole book of Revelation, we have incentive to persevere. We're, we're reminded that the devil is behind all the evil we see. The devil is behind all the deception. The devil is behind all the sin. It reminds us why things look so bad. It's because the devil is launching his final attack. Something changed when D Jesus defeated death and sat at the right hand of God so that the devil can't do what he used to do before. His, his territory is limited. His power is weaker. And his time is short. He's launching his final attack. 
And so the most encouraging thing that comes out of chapter 12, I think, at least it was for me and talking with Pastor Scott about this throughout the week, is that evil rages on earth not because it's so powerful, but because it's so vulnerable. Because the devil knows that his time is short. And we can find hope in that. We can find hope knowing that even if things get worse, that just means that, that it's, we're closer to Jesus' second coming. It just means that we're closer to being rescued. But we can have trust and be faithful that even though things are difficult, that he's coming again and he's gonna rescue his church and we'll be spending eternity in heaven with him. Amen? Amen. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.